0: Um, So as Liz was explaining, our research is on the contributions of faith groups, religious groups, to preventing violent conflict, which is not always what we think of when we think of the religious group involvement in situations of conflict, violence and peace. And for me, this comes from the experience I had working for the Anglican communion, um, which, if you don't know it, is the third largest church group in the world. Uh, It's around 80 million people worldwide in about 165 different countries. And um, most of those countries experience significant levels of social tension or conflict. And I remember when I went for the interview of this job, and I had a general knowledge of Anglicanism, but certainly nothing. Uh, Nothing detailed. And he said to me, you know what, Um, this person, this this expert in peacebuilding that we're looking to put in post to work with these churches needs to be able to work with them on preventing violent conflict. We really want to significantly increase our contribution to preventing violent conflict. And I remember a few months after that, um, when I was in post, my rental training course, and that was where I met Liz actually. And Liz, being also an Anglican priest as well as um, an academic here at Oxford, um, I was talking to her and I said, oh, I'm going to put this um, this, this Conflict Convention model in place across some of the churches in the Anglican communion, and Liz was very supportive, but I think she did say something like, "Well, good luck. Um, <laughs> and uh, a couple of years later, um, this is where we are, so we did begin to look at positive examples of churches that had really taken this mandate of creating peace in their communities to heart. And... Um, I should introduce a caveat here that <coughs> it's not to suggest in any of this work that religious groups don't also sometimes contribute towards violence. I think we can all see examples of that, especially this year. We've had the um, Boko Haram massacres in Nigeria. We've had Charlie Hebdo. We've had um, all sorts of examples um, of, um, of the religious contribution to violence. Um, and it's not even to suggest that the net impact is positive or that the net impact is Negative. There are people working on that, but it's way beyond the scope of what we're doing here. What we're doing is saying where there is a desire to contribute towards peaceful societies, how can we turn that into work that actually has a positive impact? And what is the relationship between those religious actors and their secular counterparts to work together and provide an infrastructure for doing this? So I was working with Lambeth Palace with. Uh, Brian Williams and and later with Justin Welding, and now work for Coventry University. And with Coventry Cathedral, we put together um, a research project for the ESRC, um, which they generously funded. And looking at this call to action within Anglicanism for working on conflict prevention, We set up the Faith-Based Conflict Prevention Project. My um, colleague, Professor Albert Aden, who will be speaking to you later, is the principal investigator in this project. And we asked three questions that are really deceptively simple. The first is, what's distinctive about faith-based conflict prevention? What's different about other forms of conflict prevention that we see? What are their dilemmas of faith-based engagement? Because there are very, very many. And um, uh, it's sometimes the worry about engaging with these dilemmas that prevents people from wanting to reach out and work with religious groups. And that's understandable, Um, but there's certainly, we would argue, potential to do so. And how do we do so in a way that takes uh, takes account of that? And the third question is, what scope is there for secular religious collaboration? this was a question that was particularly relevant for the Anglican Communion. The project was a knowledge exchange project, and um, I would, would go beyond that, um, it's called a knowledge exchange project. I think what we actually did was the co-production of knowledge. Um, so all of the research design was done with academics and with um, uh, faith-based researchers within the Anglican community. All of the field work was in a team of four, two academics, two faith-based researchers. Um, and all of the um, analysis of that data was done at a workshop at Lambeth Palace that Liz came to late last year, um, where we took the um, we took the insights from those research visits, and we set up an iterative process where senior leaders within the Church globally could use that and use their own experience to really hammer out what the findings of the research project were. So. The research visits that I'm talking about, the first place we went to is uh, Nigeria, and we visited two cities in Nigeria, Kaduna and Jos. Um, and these are both cities with uh, very divided uh, Christian Muslim populations. Um, it's the, 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 religious, the, the violence in both cities is different from each other, and um, I'm not suggesting that it's religious violence per se, but there's certainly aspects of it being violence in the name of religion, and religion is implicated. Um, in these conflicts, um, if not necessarily the cause. And we looked at some uh, conflict prevention projects that are being run by church groups there. So in uh, JOS, for instance, we met with um, JBPC, the Justice Development and Peace Committee in JOS, which is an organisation that was formed by the Catholic Archbishop there. Um, And they're doing marvellous work. Um, in in many different areas, in JOS and also in the wider plateau plateau state, forming peace committees of mixed religions, mixed genders, mixed age groups, mixed expertise, um, that really function as the eyes and ears of their communities. So this is what we would recognise as being a kind of early warning, early response project, um, of being able to identify indicators of violence and act on them before that violence becomes either violent or more violent. Um, So we worked in Nigeria, And we also visited the Solomon Islands, which, let me tell you, was obviously, you know, something both of us were really reluctant to do, wasn't it? We didn't (laughs) want to go at all. Um, But we went to the Solomon Islands, um, which is a world away from anything I've ever experienced, and they have a very unique um, uh, story in the Solomon Islands, which is uh, not very well known at all. Um, Their conflict uh, between 1998 and 2003, um, the religious communities plays a really huge role in trying to prevent that conflict um, and also trying to negotiate and mediate. Um, the church did a lot of the mediation between the different warring factions. Um, the Melanesian Brotherhood in particular were a vital component of that. And this is the biggest religious brotherhood certainly in the Anglican communion and I would suggest probably one of the biggest in the world. It's about 400 brothers. Um, and actually the unique thing about it is that you, you don't have to stay for life. Um, you, you join up, you're a novice, for three years and then you go on to be a brother for four years. And you can keep renewing or you can leave. When you're ready to bow out, you can do so. And what this means is that a lot of the brothers in the Melanesian Brotherhood are very young. I would say the average age is probably somewhere around the early to late 20s. And this had a really important effect for being able to speak to um, the militia groups because they were the same age. They were their school friends. Um, and and Honiara where their base is a small enough place that they did know each other. Um, And the work of the brothers was absolutely amazing and also the Sisters of the Church did a lot of work in um, humanitarian response. They slept on the front lines between the warring factions. Um, Seven of the brothers lost their lives very tragically in trying to negotiate with a rebel leader. Um, They were tortured for days, they were killed, their bodies weren't returned for months and this has left a really deep scar um, on the religious communities in the Solomon Islands, which raises a question, which is one of the questions of the research projects, is what is the cost for religious communities when they become involved in this work? What's the cost on their spiritual lives um, at, and their, in their communities? Um, as well as this, they did a lot of the de They were commissioned by the United Nations to, to de-arm some of the population because they wouldn't give their weapons away to anybody else. And they did it in community reconciliation ceremonies. Um, and they decommissioned quite a lot of weapons. Um, they had all sorts of different involvement. They, they rescued people. The church vehicles were the only vehicles that were able to pass between the different territories. So they would rescue people that found themselves in the wrong area and take them to an area where they were safer. But that might be a place, interestingly, where they never lived. Um, so they have no garden, uh, which is the way that people, in terms of subsistence, agriculture, to support themselves. So, you know, they they were really bereft, so then they would provide humanitarian assistance. All sorts of things that they did um, during this conflict. It's a really positive example of how religious groups can contribute towards um, uh, providing vital services and trying to prevent conflict from occurring. So these were our case studies. Now, we took these to our um, consultation with global Anglican faith leaders, senior faith leaders, And we convened people from South Sudan, Kenya, Pakistan, Solomon Islands, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Africa, Nigeria, the USA and the UK, which is still a fraction of the amount of countries that we could have convened within the Anglican communion. And the insights and the research visits, along with the participants' lived experience, helped to generate our research findings. I'm going to give you four headline findings, and then uh, my colleague, Professor Uzzadan, is going to come and situate those in a bit more context for you. So, what do we find? First of all, faith groups do a lot to prevent violent conflict. They just don't call it conflict prevention. And this is something that we really came across um, as a big issue when we started to ask questions and interview people. What do you do to prevent violent conflict? What can, what's your conflict prevention work like? Oh, don't do conflict prevention. You don't do conflict prevention? No, we don't do conflict prevention. You should ask the UNDP, they do the conflict prevention stuff. Okay, so what do you do? Oh, well, um, we do some trauma-healing work with the victims of conflict and we um, we we speak to, we go into the prisons and we speak to the young men in the prisons about faith literacy so they understand, you know, the uh, the, the opposing religion to theirs is not something to be feared. Um, and, you know, sometimes we kind of set up schools and things for the victims of, uh, of war so that they can go on and get professions so they don't become involved in future cycles of violence. This is all conflict prevention, um, but they're not using the same terminology. And this issue of vernacular is really important because what it often means is that if people aren't using the same words for the same thing, they can be talking across services. And we find that a lot of the um, vast amount of work in conflict prevention that religious groups are doing is flying completely under the radar because it's not being picked up with the kind of words that bigger UN agencies and others are scanning for. Um, which therefore means that they then don't have a seat at the table when issues of conflict prevention are being discussed. Um, so we have two almost completely separate communities of practice going on with very little overlap. Um, And this is just an example from Nigeria. You know, they frequently observe and document violence in a non-systematic way. However, they're not necessarily aware that their work contributes towards prevention and the reduction of armed violence. Second point, we need to think of faith groups as architects of approaches, not just implementers. Now, this is not unique to conflict prevention, of course. It's something that faith groups, when they deal with, uh, in in development in all sorts of areas, when they deal with... um, Second organisations tend to kind of raise a lot, but it's really important. Um, We saw an organisation who had been doing fantastic work convening um, local peace groups for years, and these groups were hugely active, and when we arrived in the area that they were, they'd had an awful lot of problems with the chieftain dispute. And we happened to be there at a time when we were able to go and see six of these local peace committees come together. (laughs) And in that day, form a plan of action for dealing with this is that they actually implemented. Um, but even though this is really effective, what the donor was interested in doing is funding them to uh, host a kind of smart hub in their offices to collect data and crunch it and send it over. Um, which they were doing, but when I said, OK, brilliant, can you take me, please? Um, and I can see this hub. Somebody has to find the key. Um, you know, I'm went in and it's... The, the things that donors are often interested in funding religious groups for are not necessarily the things that they're good at. So if we recognise them as architects of their own distinct approaches, we might come some way towards bridging that. Now, conflict prevention is work that is preventative in effect, even <coughs> if not design. This is another point um, that means that the religious contribution is often overlooked. When we, ana- when we look at evaluating conflict prevention, we're often looking at projects that have called themselves Conflict prevention projects. We're not necessarily looking at the whole range of activity that takes place, which in effect can help to prevent conflict. Um, so, these schools for orphans of war violence that are set up, um, looking at kind of breaking down cycles of violence over many generations, not necessarily being looked at as conflict prevention, not being evaluated in that way. We tend, really, when we say conflict prevention, only really think of a very narrow range of early warning, early response mechanisms, and it goes way beyond that. And when we recognise that, we can start to take greater account of the religious contribution. The final point I want to raise is, um, not something we're necessarily looking for within the project, but something really important, actually, as well, is that technology is an important amplifier, um, but it can't replace motivation, relationship, or trust in building peace. A lot of the faith-based approaches that we came across, across different faith traditions, were based on relationship. They weren't necessarily based on technology. What we mostly want to fund in conflict prevention, because it's innovative, is technology. Um, And you you can have the best smartphone app in the world but if people aren't, don't have the level of relationship and the level of trust to come together and to work on issues, it's not going to get you anywhere. You can give people a mobile phone, as often happens in conflict prevention projects, um, and say, here's a mobile phone so that you can all be in touch when there's a problem. Well, okay, you give me a mobile phone. Who do you call on your mobile phone? Normally, I call my mom. You know? I don't call my enemy, who, who is somebody I don't trust, and don't necessarily want to speak to. So there's lots of issues of of human relationship, which I think uh, there's there's an area for secular peace building and secular conflict prevention work to actually learn from their religious uh, counterparts here. So that's what I'll leave you with. And uh, Professor Uzzedem is going to come and situate that in a little bit more of an academic context for you. Thanks,
1: Laura. Right. Laura did a marvelous job uh, to explain what our research was about in Nigeria and the Solomon Islands. And uh, what I would try to do now is really just to reflect on what she said and try to contextualize this in a bigger picture. And to do that, uh, what Hilda Johnson said this morning in terms of her work with the United Nations, and she was responding to a question. She said, actually, the United Nations should work with religious actors more and, and that's really a striking comment uh, to make and, and in this research process we kept asking ourselves why those religious actors, local religious actors are not more prominent in the contemporary peace-building activities why they seem to be unrecognized and unrecorded in a way in terms of their activities and why we don't know more about them and, and really appreciate what a wonderful work they do. And to do this, I suppose we really need to look at that bigger picture, um, particularly since the end of the Cold War, the liberal peace agenda that has been informing our peace-building work uh, over the last 20, 25 years. Now, considering these conferences on peace and the UN at 70, I think it's it's really important just to revisit this whole idea of liberal peace agenda and the way that has been implemented since the end of the uh, Cold War. Uh, One of the, I think, key uh, issues here is that uh, no matter where these conflicts were, whether it was East Timor, whether it was Kosovo, Sierra Leone, uh, Lebanon, Sri Lanka, we tend to go and prescribe the same medicine. And that medicine is very much based on two main principles. The principle of democratization, democratic societies, and, and also to sustain that, the, the, the principle of market economy. So, obviously, this is very much the counting thought of collective security, and what Wilfred uh, uh, Wilson uh, sort of proposed at the end of the First World in order to create global peace in terms of creating that relationship between democracy and market economy. And I think the motivations were very much right there. But more and more over the last uh, nearly uh, 100 years now, since uh, uh, Wilson, this whole idea of the relationship has changed quite drastically. And it seems to me that in the contemporary uh, peace building environments, we go and try to create market economies and use democracy as a tool. So this whole idea of democratization for me, is very undemocratic, it's very external and it's very top-down, and it is set by by actors, not necessarily from uh, that particular conflict. It's almost like democratization that you put on a plane, send send it to Afghanistan, and hope that democracy will just flourish there after organizing that first election. But you know, that doesn't happen. So why this is important for our research? It is important because um, when the donor countries, international organizations, intervening in such areas, there is a legitimacy gap because of the liberal peace and the way it's being implemented in different countries. And in that legitimacy gap, I think we can make that really distinction between what's been happening uh, over the last 25 years. After the end of the Cold War, you know, the operations in Guatemala, El Salvador, Uh, Cambodia, you saw the United Nations taking the lead, and under that leadership, there will be different contents of peacekeeping, peacebuilding activities. But it was a civilian activity. That has changed, especially after Kosovo, and especially after the post-911 context. So more and more, what we are seeing is that the international community really has lost that third-party neutrality. So the legitimacy of intervening in those countries and building peace is really questionable. So when you intervene in such uh, such places, it becomes rather problematic to deal with the the religious actors in that particular locality. The issue of fear, the issue of skepticism, and and really trying to legitimize your own presence. So I think the international community is suffering because of that. Um, And I suppose another uh, key um, shortcoming of this thinking is that it really tries to resolve conflicts, rather than to transform them. Yes, you need to have political settlement at some point in order to start that negative peace, the absence of violence in order to build peace. I'm not denying that, but I think we are putting far too much importance on that, but not really on the conflict transformation. That we deal with the challenge of peace very much in that very locality, at school, in workplace, in, in the day-to-day life. I just came back from Palestine, and there the whole issue of the Oslo peace process, for example, when you ask the Palestinians, they would say, well, actually, the Oslo peace process damaged our peace and peace prospects during the 1993-94 period more than anything else. Because it was trying to resolve the conflict. But today, I think, yes, all the efforts for conflict, resolving conflict uh, in, in the uh, uh, Palestinian context is hugely important. But how about conflicts in Palestine itself? You know, whether this is between Hamas and al-Qata, or different uh, class issues, and the economic interests, and, and the, the polarization of the Palestinian society. Why is this important to deal with the faith faith groups? When you have that kind of resolution perspective, you are not really going and exploring the opportunities of working with local actors like religious organizations and faith-based organizations in such contexts. So it's a missed opportunity because we have a particular lens that we are looking at those conflicts, and really not recognizing that, there could be many actors, like, uh, uh, like uh, religious uh, organizations, and what they could do. Another, I suppose, key um, problem with the liberal peace agenda and the way it's implemented is really um, the pretensions that we have about local... Po- uh, am I going too far from the microphone? I like moving around with it. <laughs> The pretensions of um, local participation and this whole issue of ownership. So there wouldn't be one single um, project proposal you know, uh, implemented uh, by the international organizations that wouldn't mention local participation. It's always that. It's the gender mainstreaming, uh, local participation. But in reality, how much really we want that and we care about that, is questionable. Because participation is really the way you share the power and the resources. And I just don't see that in the implementation of liberal peace in world-faced uh, countries. That is really the case. So that would be many excuses, like especially when it comes to faith organizations, or they are part and parcel of the conflict. You cannot work with them. You know, they are dangerous people, right? Well, actually, those people have been around for a very long time. They had the capacities, they had the resources, they had the understanding of that particular environment. So, that kind of the um, shying away from the real participation, uh, that's a big challenge, why we are not able to incorporate the work of local religious actors in such environments. And we are very much interested in products, outputs, projects, but not necessarily processes. We are not really interested in changing, creating opportunities for that change with local actors. It's about three-year program, investing certain amount of funding, and then outputs. With that kind of thinking, you have no time to work with such actors. Working with these actors would require time, energy, conflict resolution skills. That is day-to-day uh, uh, changing of power dynamics. So really just to conclude, um, the way we are we've been operating, the way we've been trying to deal with the challenge of peace building over the last 20-25 uh, years, has been far too much dominated from that particular perspective of liberal peace agenda. The principles of liberalism, they are fine, but they should not turn into something that obliterates Afghan leaders in that process. They should not turn into something that basically excludes some clear resources, like faith organizations, uh, and, and other local actors in that process. So it's overtly technocratic, it is a bureaucratic process, it is driven with the funding interests and the, and, the, uh, and the processes. And it's very elitist. The language you use, the programs you have, the whole issue of professionalism, none of this would be a reality for those local faith organizations. But they have something incredible they have something that they can contribute to local peace-building processes. Thank you.